Welcome back, everyone, to R2Cast number 126. Last week, or last episode, I should say. Can't even say last week now, that's two a week. You know what you say? Last Monday, last Friday, because I don't even know when this has been released. Um, last episode we had was Holly Atkinson. Uh, you may follow her on Instagram or as Cups on Cows. Holly um, probably didn't expect to say this, but started off by saying she wanted to be a paleontologist paleontologist when she was older so we spoke about fossils um, and then the next thing she wanted to be and did become was a vet um, and it now now works on uh, what was one of her clients farms um, so they met that way which was really nice uh, her and Adam run a 700 <clears throat> 700 Frisian cross jersey uh, milk and haired in oh Devon I might be wrong there. If I'm wrong, I apologise, Holly and Adam, if you're listening. Um, Holly's sort of role in there is, in her words, raising 200 heifers and raising two little kids. So I'm sure she keeps busy there, and I'm sure the two are just as much as the 200. Um, the next episode we'll have is with Charlie Beatty. Charlie's part of the HDB Circle of Influence, which I think's changed its name recently to something else uh but was originally known as circle of influence she's she's been posting on instagram for some time sort of one of the ogs of the farming instagram scene uh, has a arable farm and uh uh sorry a, a mixed farm so i should say uh, arable and livestock farm so uh, a good episode coming up there today we've got a, a good episode as well and, and it's sort of a how to explain this it's, it's an instagram account i've been aware of for some time um but never looked into it. I don't know if, if our guest today will agree with me, but there's there's a lot of accounts that I'm, I'll maybe see a post of but not follow. And I'm like, oh, that's quite interesting. Never actually hit follow. Uh, but now that I find myself, you know, speaking to a lot of people, I hit follow a lot more often. So it's been one of those sort of uh, accounts and it's a story I'm very much looking forward to, actually. This this podcast and, <clears throat> and before podcast, People in Food and Farming interviews was very much created to show how to get into farming. And I think this is an extremely interesting one uh, because, along those lines, shall we say. Um, today's guest, and I apologise for saying this wrong, Josh, correct me, is Josh Henneker. That's it, Josh Henneker, yeah. Yeah, Josh, say hello, mate. <clears throat> Thanks, man. Thanks for all this. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Yeah. I'm looking forward yeah. to it. I'm looking forward to it. And just before we get started with another episode of the R2Cast, I would like to thank our primary sponsors, A-Plan Rural. A-Plan Rural are heavily involved on the social media scene in the ag space with 120,000 followers on Instagram. They use this following to host social media takeovers with farmers throughout the country to showcase their stories. They also post to their rural community blog with further stories about these people in the industry. On top of this, they like to support initiatives that are championing the British agricultural industry, such as myself. So thank you to Aplan Rural for that. I have to ask, I obviously do know because we spoke about it off camera, but I'm sure everyone's listening. What accent's that? Because it's a really nice accent. <clears throat> oh, thank you very much. Now, um, it's probably influenced by the fact I've been in the UK for like, oh, what is it, like 15 years now, yeah. uh, maybe 16 years. Uh, South African from Cape Town. Um, shout out to Cape Town. And uh, yeah, actually, I was I was saying earlier, I'm half Scottish, so my mother's a Haddon, and half South African, so father is Heineke. Um, and yeah, moved moved up here. My missus is is British. Uh, she spent some time with me in South Africa, but we we moved back up to well, we moved to London about 15, 16 years ago. Yeah. So yeah, been kicking about for some time now. 
I have to ask, where in Scotland is your mum from? Do you know where? Where are we? Uh, well, her her brother lives in Edinburgh, right? But I think they grew up in Dundee, uh, yep. around about Dundee. Yeah, um, yeah. I and I love I love it. I mean, it's. I think that um, I don't think I'm hard enough for the weather, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Like, uh, I was nervous coming to Wales, thinking that the rain would really get me down. Uh, but to be honest with you, like, I feel like it's, it's a pretty good place to be, especially when you look at the climate around the world and the droughts and the heat and stuff. It's not such a bad deal, really. I'd rather have a little bit too much rain than too little. So, so we, I think we just heard a wee person running around. Um, I'm just trying to work out, they will be one of the most multicultured people so their yeah. dad is half south african half scottish their mum is english and they're welsh is that right yeah uh, so she's yeah our little our little girl who sorry about the sound if you hear the not at all, not at all. um yeah so she uh actually her one of her grandparents is irish the other one is english and then her other grandparents is scottish and the other one is south african um so yeah and then she's growing up here in wales and we're making you know making a thing of trying to get her to learn the welsh language so she's going to a welsh speaking nursery and it's awesome like you know she's counting to five in welsh already and yeah. like i'm just like i'm not really good with languages so for me it's just incredible like their heads are like little sponges and they just soak up stuff so quickly so <clears throat> Uh, it's really cool. She's she's picking up Welsh, a really beautiful language too. So I'm I'm pleased about that. Um, is South Africa English speaking? Yeah. Yeah, South Africa actually has eleven different official languages. It's pretty diverse. So um, English, primarily like spoken in Cape Town, where I'm from, which is a very sort of European uh, city. Um, and then Afrikaans is like the sort of, you know, the, the language of generally the white population there. And then um, amongst the black population, you get like loads of other languages. Um, you know, Zulu and, and Koza are the two main ones, but you get a lot, a lot more. Yeah. And like I said, I'm not too good with language. So I, I, I speak English and that's I'm confident with English. <laughs> Yeah, oh, you're brilliant, brilliant. The, I, I think you're the, the person to ask this. I was always a bit of a <clears throat> of a political geography geek, I guess, when I was younger. And yeah. uh, I loved like learning capital cities and landmarks of the world and flags and all that sort of thing. And um, mm. one question that I have always had mixed responses on is the mm. capital of South Africa. Now, I was always under the, under the belief it was Cape Town. But it seems to be it's Cape Town, Pretoria, Johannesburg, and sometimes Durban. Is it? So what's that? What's the answer there? Or is I there... was gonna. I was gonna say Pretoria. Um, okay. I'm gonna be really embarrassed if it's not. But like Joburg is pretty should should basically be because Joburg's where all the business goes on. You know, Joburg okay. is like Joburg's the London of of uh, South Africa. Yeah. Um. Although, yeah. But that's where all the business happens. But I, th I think it's Pretoria. Right. And uh, I'm going to be, yeah, I'm, I'm stupid for not Here, knowing. Man, no, it's it's, it's, it's yeah. always confused me. It's always confused me. There seems to be so yeah. many different opinions and answers to it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, 
I, I, I seem to be really focused on language and stuff like that, but I was going to say one thing that um, Wales does a fantastic job of, of preserving their language. Uh, you know, mm. having been from Scotland my whole life, we have a national language in Gaelic, but <laughs> do I know any words? Yes, I know one. Um, but it was never a thing we touched on in school. But in Wales, mm. like you say, it's, it's literally... I mean, my ex's family was from Wales, so uh, I sort of know Wales quite well, and I was also in Wales last weekend, and, and it's mm-hmm. really interesting to just see how well that's preserved. So it's nice to hear that, that your wee one will be, will be learning that as well. So brilliant. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful language, and I've, there is definitely, like, um, there are areas in Wales where they, they do and don't speak Welsh. Um, I mean, South, Pem- like, Pembrokeshire, where, like, we're in Carmarthenshire, on the border of Carmarthenshire, Pembrokeshire, and Pembrokeshire, they don't speak as much Welsh, um, Carmarthenshire more so. Um, but yeah, like definitely, if you want some respect from farmers around here, if you can speak Welsh, that gets you a long way. Yeah. I can't speak Welsh. But <laughs> my plan is, once Ada can speak Welsh, my little one, I will take her everywhere I go <laughs> and, uh, and and use her to score some points. Like, Brilliant. <laughs> that's why you have a kid no i'm joking yeah, exactly man it's a hard language man welsh is tough like you look at like some of the words um in welsh like you just look at some of the street signs and you just like makes you dizzy um but it's a very cool language so there's there's a place coming down that i always remember and i'll be butchering this word i know i will but to me it's called roshalantragog and I just see that word and I'm like, nope. Yeah, yeah. Don't even try it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. But no, here, brilliant, mate. Really, really nice sort of intro to you as 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 a person as well and, and sort of hearing the family story. But uh, your your story, I guess, the the part of what we're here to talk about, Josh, starts in London. Um mm. working with your partner, mm. uh, Abigail, um, working in London, and mm. it just got to the stage that wasn't for you, is that right? Yeah, man, that's right. Like, I actually had really great colleagues that I worked with um, uh, in in London. Like, uh, I started working in, my background is in sort of sales, marketing, project management, but focused on tech. Um, So when when I got into the workplace in London, I I started uh, in the world of like mobile apps. So building apps for smartphones. Um, in the early days and that was super cool really interesting people loved it um abby's an artist and an illustrator um and she was doing at one point she's doing quite a lot of like sort of commercial more boring work and not really being able to like fully express herself Mm. creatively and working for some questionable questionable clients i guess um uh so but it got to a point actually where in a way, like I experienced what a lot of people experienced during COVID quite early on, because I ended up leaving the company that I uh, was working for and then started consulting and freelancing. And that meant I started working from home and I was working from home on my own full time. Like there was no, it was, it was all like, Zoom calls, well, actually at the time it wasn't Zoom calls, but it was calls with people from the other side of the world and back and forth and one or two meetings and stuff. But I actually, I think a lot of people experienced a similar thing 
during lockdown where it was like suddenly your whole routine changes you're not in the office you're on your own and I don't know you got a bit more time to think about like what it is that you want to do and uh, at that point I think I was less inspired to carry on doing what I was doing Mm. and Abby and I were having like loads of chats about like what it was that we wanted to do next like I wasn't going to sit at home and work you know work on a computer from home uh, for the rest of my life so and we had always um, joked about one day retiring and buying a farm and you know uh, sort of growing our own food and having our own animals we've always been both of us are really passionate about animals of all types and just like super keen on that so and I tell the story kind of often, but like um, I was sitting in a bus in London one day, driving along, thinking about, you know, just dreaming about like one day having a farm and another bus like drove past and there was this ad on the side of that bus. And I I can't remember what it was for, what the ad was for, but it just said, start where you want to go. And that, that was the moment that it just like, it, it kind of triggered, it put that seed in my mind. And I was like, why would you wait? Like you, at the time, I think, what was I? I was 30 at the time. And I was like, why would you wait until you are like, you know, old and not really able to do as much physical work anymore? Why would you wait until the end of your life to start doing something that you really want to do now? And it was sort of that moment that like, Abby and I started going, okay, well, how could we actually do this? And then we started researching stuff and like looked at, okay, well, if we sold our flat in London, um, how much, how much could we take away from that? What could we buy? And realistically, there was, um, you know, there was nothing in the traditional sense that we could buy with the cash that we would have left over after paying the bank what we owed them. Um, so we started thinking about, okay, going back to South Africa and buying some land there where it's much cheaper or going to Spain or Portugal, buying some cheap land there. Um, and long story short, for reasons like we decided not to go back to South Africa because the crime on farms is just insane. And it's like, I, I couldn't justify taking, you know, starting potentially starting a family back in South Africa on rural land there it's way too dangerous um so it was going to be spain or portugal or something along those lines um now i'm just kind of launching into the whole (laughs) whole story but i may as well um and so yeah we did it i I quit my job we sold the flats um we had no plan other than to get a camper van and then to start traveling around Europe, uh, around the UK and then kind of around Europe to try and look for some land. The first thing we decided to do was get in a camper van and go and visit our family in Scotland, actually. Right. Um, and yeah, it was like just as we managed to leave London, got out of London, um, something happened and Abby started, um, Abby's numb, legs started to go numb. And she also started getting really clumsy and like bumped her head a lot. And it was just something wasn't quite right. And so we ended up seeing a consultant in Edinburgh uh, about her legs. And she ended up getting diagnosed with MS at that point. 
and we were just like damn um you know like how do you how, how do you how do you go about starting a farm when you've just been given that kind of diagnosis and you don't know how it's going to end up so that really changed our sort of our criteria of what we were looking for we decided you know there's no ways that we're going to let this we had no idea how it was actually going to play out like ms can end up being really bad or it can end up being pretty manageable you just you don't really know um so we weren't going to just say right that's over we're not going to start a farm anymore uh that would have been pretty sad um but we did change our criteria and go well okay it's probably not the greatest idea to leave the uk leave the nhs leave all of our family in the uk uh when when we've just had this diagnosis so we ruled out um we ruled out spain and portugal and everything and i came across um this idea of buying land in wales um because actually i came across this thing called the one planet development policy or opd uh, and i don't know if you've heard about it it's quite Love a contra it. controversial thing actually like um it's basically like the concept is that you can buy agricultural land and you can get permission to live on the land as long as you basically go off grid build a low impact home and produce 70% of your own food and and then handle all your own waste and generate all your own energy okay. pretty unique policy only exists in wales um nowhere else in the uk uh and it's the first time i think that um that the town and country planning act has you know since the town and country planning act was put in place after world war ii it's the first time there's been a policy like this available so what that meant was we could find some land buy agricultural land you know and without a house on it and that made a huge difference to to the you know to the viability of actually starting a farm on a very small budget um we were already actually planning to go off grid and do that whole thing uh, part of the thing was in spain we were going to you know, run everything off solar and we had all these plans and ideas of how we would do that. Um, so that really like sort of fitted in with our plans. Um, again, to cut another long story short, we, after moving here, so that's what brought us into Wales originally. We got to Wales, decided we really liked it here too, um, found some land, bought the land, 10 acres uh, in Carmarthenshire, and after looking around for a while, looking at people doing the One Planet policy, we ended up, well, first of all, we decided we needed, we needed a place in the meantime, because it's a very long process to actually write the application and get planning permission to do it. So we decided we need to rent somewhere whilst we put in our application. Um, there was nowhere to rent it's impossible to find anywhere to rent here in this part of the world in the countryside really hard and then we stumbled upon this this place we're in here which was derelict a uh, little welsh cottage next to the local chapel needed a lot of work was going to go on auction for a very small amount of money um 
and we managed to intercept the auction and just say, hey, you know, we'll we'll give you what uh, what the um, the guide price is now if you're keen. They were keen. We bought it and. We put a little caravan outside in the garden, lived in the caravan for a while, started fixing up the house, eventually moved in. But um, as, time went, as time went by, we, we decided we, we weren't gonna rush into doing the OPD or the One Planet um, application because of how intense it is. I mean, it's like the, the, the policy basically asks you to, you have to, within a five-year period, start your, your land-based enterprise, go uh, build a house, go off-grid, producing all your own energy and produce 70% of your food and manage all your waste. So all of that has got to happen in five years. And I was looking at this going, oh, I just don't, I don't think we're going to manage to do this. Like this is, yeah, it's, it's, I, I can't express how unrealistic I think it actually is. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd agree. Yeah. yeah. I think the only way that it's realistic is with a massive initial investment. And I feel like that's probably what they're trying to go away from. Yeah. yeah. And most, most people, <clears throat> there are some people who've managed, you know, they've got enough capital to do that. Um, but most people are really building, uh, building the house mostly themselves with some extra labor you know, and they're doing everything sort of on the on on a very low budget and mostly themselves, and they're learning as they go. And we would have had to do that if we were going to do it. So, yeah. So we so inside. I mean, we we might still do it. We might still do the OPD one day. But for now, we we're pretty happy living in a you know an old little cottage up the road. So, you know it. We would have never ended up here if it wasn't for discovering that policy because we would have thought, well, there's no point. But what actually ended up happening is we found the 10 acres and then literally like, you know, it's about a mile up the road is this little, this little cottage. So, you know, if you had said to me, Josh, you, you might be able to find 10 acres and a super, super, super cheap house a mile up the road within perfect walking distance from us. Like just that sort of, it was a real big fluke to be able to actually find those two things. So we were just really lucky that we came across like a good, good setup like that. So now I commute, I've got the best commute in the world. I just, I walk down, you know, one mile uh, through a little beautiful little road with lovely hedges and whales to get to my workplace. So um you can't ask for much better yeah. than that, can you? Yeah, so that, that's how we landed in Wales. <laughs> so this is, you don't have to give me specifics on this, but it's, it's yeah. a question that's probably interests me and interests quite a lot of the viewers. Yeah. What, how much is housing in London? Um, so what did we spend? Well, basically, uh, our little place was around, around 200 grand. And it was a one-bed um, flat, wasn't it? Yeah, one-bed flat, yeah. <laughs> But, but so here's the thing, right? What did we pay for it now? I'm trying to remember the exact numbers, but I think it was like 250 and then we sold it just, just shy of 400K. So wow. yeah, it, it, it's, we did renovate it. We put some money into renovating it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a basement flat with needed quite a lot of work. 
but we were lucky, you know, we were really lucky because we were in Peckham, shout out to Peckham, best part of London, in my opinion, Peckham, Camberwell, absolutely loved living there. Um, and then it ended up, um, ended up kind of going through that classic gentrification yeah. thing where uh, suddenly serious money started moving in. There was talk of a tube station coming to Camberwell. I don't know what's going on with that anymore. Uh, but yeah, the, the value skyrocketed. And, um, you know, I think it's really important for people to understand, like, you know, how much, how much it costs to get into farming, first of all, and, you know, how lucky we were to even be in the circumstance to be able to, to get, just to get our foot in the door with, like, a very small basic setup, like, uh, you know, quite privileged, very lucky. I had a good job in London. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. And, and this is one of the concerns I have is how are we meant to get young people into agriculture? Uh, it, you know, if they, if they can't even manage to purchase a house to live in because of the crazy prices of housing, it's, how, on, how on earth are you going to farm? You know, it's hands down along with planning, the biggest issue I've seen in 126 episodes. You know, I'd speak to folk, it is the biggest issue. I would just like to quickly interrupt the show for a minute to give you some extra information on our primary sponsors, A-Plan Rural. A-Plan offer bespoke cover for farms and estates, the UK over, and will give you tailored insurance for anything on the farm, from your old workhorse tractor that's been around 20 years, or a fancy new and exciting diversification. We can't get young folk in because you can't afford to buy. You just can't. Yeah. And, and tenancies are, you know, there's none. <laughs> um, the, none is not the case, but you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. And it's it's a tricky one. But you've you've sort of went in yourself and Abby have went in, Josh, in in an unconventional way, and I think that's interesting. That's why your story's interesting. People might think about getting into farming and think, well, you have to do what you think when you think of farming you think of getting into beef cattle dairy cattle sheep maybe arable whatever um you guys went down a proper different route can you tell us about that and why you chose that yeah so i should start off by saying like when i came out here like we'd read a few books on permaculture okay and when i came out here i knew absolutely f all about farming okay. like yeah. i knew nothing okay like i i um, the number of times Abby had to correct me, I would use straw and hay interchangeably, like all the time. Okay. And, like she, she had to correct me so many times before I was like, oh yeah, okay, so straw is what you bed them on, and hay is what you feed them. Okay, got it, got it. Um, so yeah, we came into this with zero knowledge um, and a lot of idealistic stuff like that we had read in permaculture you know books and, and whatnot and, and youtube videos so um you know our our dream was to create this sort of mixed polyculture small mixed farm that was going to be profitable our goal from the very beginning was to be um profitable full-time farmers both of us no side jobs no side hustles earning a living on 10 acres, producing food, 
and we didn't want to be doing Airbnb. Uh, we didn't want to be doing courses. We didn't want to be doing any of that other stuff around the side of actual farming. And I now know today that I think that that is totally unrealistic. And there, there are some people who are managing to make it work in really particular circumstances. Okay. Um, I don't want to say to people that it is completely impossible just because we couldn't do it. I think that's probably not right. But it is hard. Like, you know, it is really, really hard, especially when you look at the amount of money you have to invest just to get started. Yeah. Um, so our dream was a mixed, a mixed polyculture, meaning that we were going to have a combination of livestock, probably growing veg, uh, growing perennial crops, fruit, um, and then growing various trees for various purposes. Um, when we first landed on the 10 acre fields, you know, two blank fields that were previously grazing, uh, sheep grazing, and some cows too, and probably a few horses. Um, like, yeah, it was very, very, very sort of intimidating trying to work out what we were going to do on these 10 acres, but we started out deciding we were going to put in a blueberry patch of about an acre uh, because the soil was acidic enough that we thought we might manage. Right. And there's a guy actually across the valley growing blueberries fairly successfully. Uh, so we started off with an acre of blueberries. Um, and we started off by getting some sheep too, just to help us keep the grass down. Um, and then Fairly early on, we started getting into ducks um, and we chose ducks over chickens for a few reasons. Um, the first being we were like, well, ducks are much better suited to whales, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, rain in this, the rain in this part of the country is like exceptional. Um, I was always, I always laughed because one of my mates had some chickens and we were visiting him one day and it just started pouring down and all of his chickens just like ran straight into the, uh, um, into their shed. And with ducks, it's like the opposite. They literally like, if it's raining, they like turn into the rain and they just sort of walk into it. Like they love it. So I was like, ducks makes total sense started looking into it i was like nobody else is really doing duck eggs i mean you get duck eggs at people's gates yeah no one was doing organic duck. there was one other in the whole country one other person doing organic duck eggs um and then fairly soon after we started that person sold that that person just stopped doing it um so no so it was super niche we could charge a premium. No one else was doing it. They were well suited to our climate. We loved them because they're just they're just the funniest characters to watch. Brilliant, love them. Uh, they're, they're, yeah, they're way way cuter than chickens. Like chickens just look like little sort of dinosaurs, and ducks ducks are really funny. They're just so cool. So we're like ducks. We're going to do ducks. Uh, you know, we had been. Oh, the other thing is, uh, for a while, we lived on our fields in a caravan whilst we were, like, sorting out the house purchase and stuff. And, mate, there were, like, slugs, like, you can't believe. Slugs just everywhere because right. it was long grass. It was wet all the time. Um, and slugs absolutely loved it. So the other thing was we were, like, right, 
ducks are meant to be a lot more carnivorous than chickens. Yeah. They love slugs. So for all of those reasons, we were like, we're going to do ducks. Um, so we got into ducks. Um, and along, alongside that, we were also experimenting with other stuff, a bit of veg production here and there, um, testing various crops. Um, you know, we, we got ourselves organic certified, started growing the blueberries. We were playing around with sheep. We were playing around with agroforestry, um, starting to try and get a hang of like, how do you have trees and shrubs alongside sheep without yeah. just losing it all? And yeah, eventually um, the duck eggs, you know, they were quite slow to start. It was hard to find a local market for them. There was always a cap on how many people wanted duck eggs. Um, you believe that, yeah. A lot of people are squeamish about them. A lot of people don't even know the ducks lay eggs, believe it or not. Like mm -hmm. I actually had that comment several times. Um, but eventually we managed to get in with Abel and Cole. Um, so do you, do you know Abel and Cole? I've heard the name, but I don't know much about them. I don't actually know what they are. I assume they're something yeah. to do with eggs, but I've just heard the so, name. So they're, um, they're a large uh, organic uh, veg box scheme. Um, or a large organic soup, supermarket, shall we say. Um, they're kind of like Riverford, if you've ever heard of them. Um, yeah. so they're, they're Riverford's main competitor. Um, and they're big. And they were like, we used to get duck eggs from this supplier who's now shut down because they only do organic stuff. Um, yeah. They could no longer get organic duck eggs from the other supplier. And they found out we were the other one. Uh, the only other one got in touch and they were like, we'll take as many as you can, you know, within this amount. I mean, as many as we could realistically produce. Yeah. Um, and, and then that was when we were like, shit, this is pretty good. Actually, there's a lot of demand. There was no shortage of demand. Like once, once Abel and Cole came along, demand was no longer our issue. Like we had lots of issues in the business, but like, Demand was not that. Like they were willing to take everything all the time, um, and and we can go into the details of the challenges of raising ducks, um, I guess. But yeah, that was not an issue. Demand. Um, so once that happened, once we started to see interest from Abel and Cole, we then took out a few more loans or another loan to basically scale up, get a bigger shed. Get a feed bin because at that point I was still handballing 25 kilo sacks of feed, not getting a good price, and we were using a like a dodgy little shed that I had built, you know. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so then we scaled up and uh, we got a like I said a, sh a shed and a feed bin, and we put a, a track in for that, and um, and that was good. Uh, but then we had some issues that we ran into. The, the first issue was, well, um, uh, around about the time COVID hit, uh, we had an unexpected pregnancy, um, which is, is, was the thumping you heard upstairs. <laughs> um, and that sort of made life a lot more busy at the same time as lockdown. So, uh, we actually, at the time, we were living in this house before it had been renovated, and um, 
it was in no fit condition to raise a child. And we were just like the dust, the mold, temperature, it was all terrible. So we were like, damn, we had to take out another. We, we Luckily, we managed to get a loan from a family member. Um, so, you know, uh, bless them. We have an interest-free loan on that. We used that to renovate the house um, during lockdown whilst Abby was pregnant. Yeah. At one point, she was literally climbing a ladder to get to her bedroom whilst she was pregnant. Probably not the best, Jeff, yeah. <laughs> not, not the best. My mother-in-law was not pleased. Eventually, the missus moved in with the mother-in-law until such time as we had finished that. But, yeah, so a long time, alongside, um, yeah, so as, as things were scaling up on the farm, um, we had the lockdown, we had a pregnancy, we had a renovation, uh, and then shortly after that, then there was massive feed price inflation issues that we ran into. And, you know, we were constantly trying to juggle, like, how much do we put the price up versus how much, how quickly is the feed price going up versus yeah. the price of our eggs. Um, so that was, that was a real issue. And then we got into trouble. Like, then we ran into trouble where we were trading water and then all of a sudden the feed was way too expensive, way too quickly. Um, we needed another load of feed. The business didn't have the cash flow in order to actually fill the bin, but we had something like 600 ducks all roaring at us that they were hungry. So at the point that I was like, damn, we've got about 30 days before we run out of food. Um, um, I decided, like, I, at that point, I thought it was over. I thought that, that, that is it now. Um, and I decided to put out a YouTube video, basically. Um, I, I decided to basically do a series on YouTube called How to Fail at Farming. And it was, it was basically like, I, I was kind of frustrated with all the fluffy talk around regenerative agriculture and permaculture and how like, you know, you can, you can do this, you can farm profitably if you just do it the right way. Like, yeah. and, and that, you know, obviously it's true. You have to do it the right way, but it's not so much about like, obviously there's all the benefits that regenerative agriculture has around you know, soil health, animal welfare, like nutrient density, um, biodiversity, water retention, all these things are amazing and that is awesome, but it doesn't necessarily always translate to loads of profit. And like- I completely agree with you on that. And I'm glad you said that because there is this sort of, your word was fluffy, this sort of perfect world thing that it's easy, yeah. <laughs> but it's yeah. not. Yeah, yeah. I, it really frustrates me when you know, because I see, and because I was this person, I came, I came from London to the countryside after reading a few books on permaculture, and it's like I don't know if you've ever seen the holistic management planning stuff. Like, it's cool, it's awesome, but like just because you've written out your dream about how you want things to be, like, you know, um, I want my, I want free time in my life, and I want to produce healthy food, and I want, and I, you know, and I want to earn this much money. Like just because you write it down in a holistic management plan doesn't mean that it's going to happen. And if it was that easy, like there are farmers out here who have been doing this for so many generations. Like I know that you know 
you, you have to be able to bring fresh ideas and new ideas into, into an industry sometimes, but there's also like a lot of really good reasons why people do things in a certain way. Yeah. And finding that balance between the two is, is, um, is the key, I think. So, so what I wanted to do was almost be a bit of an anti-guru in a way, like, like here's a guide on how to fail at farming, you know, like <laughs> here's your 10 step guide to failing at farming. A um, little bit of tongue in cheek. So I actually decided, well, because our YouTube channel had just been monetized. Ironically, it was monetized because somebody else did a YouTube video about our farm. They got like, they've got like 2 million views on that video. But as a result, a bunch of people came from that video to our channel and subscribed. And I was sitting there one day and got an email like I was doing nothing on YouTube and I got an email from YouTube saying you've been monetized and I was like damn I, I was like because I was monetized and then I did nothing with it for ages and then when it came to the point where the business was about to fail I was like damn why didn't I just start doing YouTube like when I got monetized like maybe if I'd actually attempted to have a YouTube channel I would have actually been earning some money now yeah. and so it was at that point I was like well maybe as a like a last attempt i'm going to do some a, a youtube video on how to fail at farming and do a, a, a few videos about that and see how it goes and then maybe in the future we'll earn some ad revenue from that or something yeah. it was kind of you know a fairly desperate situation uh put the first um video out and got a lot of like support from people and then people started saying commenting like you should do a GoFundMe or a crowdfunding campaign. Um, and I, I definitely support you. And I, I got a number of, you know, comments like that. And like Abby and I felt pretty weird about it. We weren't really sure. And then I ended up having a conversation with one of my best mates from South Africa who was like, mate, if people want to help you, let them help you. And he was like, you've been doing this for seven years, like working your ass off, like don't just let this all, you know, go now. So I was like, cool. So we did this, we did a crowdfunding campaign um, and we raised like the actual campaign itself raised about eight grand and then another two grand came in privately. People didn't want to go through, um, um, they didn't want to go through Indiegogo. So yeah, about 10 grand was raised on that campaign. Um, which was awesome. Um, I actually was shooting for something much bigger at the time. Like um, I was shooting for completely changing the farm over to um, insect feed for protein along with some locally sourced grains. And so I was shooting for something a lot bigger for a lot more money um, because that was going to be really expensive to do. And it didn't hit that, but we did manage to save us from going under at the time. And um, yeah, it, it was incredible. Like the support we received was amazing. It saved us. And then we we're like, okay, so then we're left with the situation of, okay, now what do we do? We, you know, we've saved ourselves cash flow wise, but the business is still fundamentally in trouble. And like, this is not going to fix our problems. Like, you know, there's a, there's a lot of learnings that we have from how the business was operating um, and various problems related to feed price, but also ducks specifically. 
and the challenges we had with them. Um, so we had to come up with something else. Um, and we, we, I can tell you a bit about the other things we've been working on too, but, um, well, I'll, because I'll, I guess everyone should probably know I'm no longer farming ducks. I no longer have ducks anymore. Despite managing to get the crowdfunding support, because that was like, when was that? That was like autumn, beginning of winter 2022. We mm -hmm. raised that money, got through the winter. That was incredible. In the background, I'd been working on this deal because somebody from Europe had contacted me. They were a farm looking to start raising. It was this massive farm project looking to start raising khaki campbells uh, for ducks, which is the, the sorry, khaki campbells for eggs, which is the breed of duck we have. Um, they wanted our khaki campbells. They really liked our farm and the genetics that we had. So they wanted to, and they couldn't find any else in Europe. I mean, Europe is, Europe has almost got no khaki Campbell genetics. It's it's crazy because I have a lot of people contact me about this, but most we've of the time, we've got two khaki Campbells at home, just two. Two, okay, yeah. <laughs> Not so going to run much, a farm. Yeah. They're much more common in the UK, like much more common. Um, yeah, I have, I've had a lot of people contact me, but most of the time they're contacting me, they want sort of 20 eggs or, you know, whatever. And it's never worth the hassle to try and get it to them in Europe for that much. But this, um, this farm wanted 20,000 hatching eggs. And like the hatching, hatching eggs are worth a lot of money, like, you know, per egg, way more than table eggs. So I was like, damn, this is cool. This is... You know, we and I in the beginning, to be honest, I didn't believe them. Um, okay. I thought that they were like just some crazy people. And eventually, they um, like over a period of months, I was in communication with Defra um, about ex getting an export license. Um, these people put me in touch with. Um, they had a special company that was in charge of like helping them import various livestock and they had been importing all sorts of breeds from the UK already. And so I was like, wow, these people are for real. So that was all cool. And basically over a number of months, I was working on this um, and it was looking good. And it got to the point around March when we were ready to export hatching eggs. Um, but one of the things we had to do just before exporting is uh, test the flock for salmonella um, and you know like our birds were all very healthy and very happy and I was completely naive to the fact that they could have salmonella just because I was like the healthy happy birds you know like we had very little losses of any of the ducks <clears throat> I spoke to the vet that was helping me with this export thing um, and he was like, I was like, so what, so if I do the salmonella test, um, what do you think of the chances that I'll have salmonella? He was like, well, the bird's happy and healthy. I was like, yeah, they're happy and healthy. He was like, well, you're probably fine then. He's like, there's very few people who end up testing positive for salmonella. I now know that that's for a very particular reason. And it's because most of the people are doing chickens and they're doing, and, and those chickens are coming to them vaccinated 
um, and then they've got a they've got an in-out system, you know, where the flock comes in, they keep them for twelve months, then they get rid of them, and then they sterilize the whole shed, and then the next flock vaccinated comes in. So, you know, there's a very particular reason. The other thing is ducks are like super prone to carrying salmonella. It's very, very, very common for them to be carrying it. I now know this. Um, and because we were breeding our own ducks and we didn't have this like hard changeover between flocks, uh, we had mixed ages. We were doing some pretty funky stuff in terms of keeping, we were keeping ducks for two, three years um, rather than culling them at sort of 12 to 18 months. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I went into it completely naive thinking, well, we're gonna pass this, it's fine. And um, sent the test off, did a fecal sample on the actual, you know, the poop from the ducks, uh, came back positive. And I was like, that was just like a sideswipe, like, um, and then of course, uh, then the standard procedure is then to cull, uh, yeah. to cull the lot. So yeah, that was March this year. And here we are, um, we've had to cull the ducks. Um, also, we a long story short is, uh, turns out that the ducks don't fall under this the salmonella control program in, in the UK. So they, so I was like, I was waiting for ages for, for um, animal plant health to tell me like what the next steps were. Um, eventually I got a phone call saying, well, the good news is, is that we can't force you to cull the birds because um, there's no way for us to enforce this because they don't fall under the national control, uh, salmonella control program. Um, but the bad news is that we can tell you to stop selling the eggs. <laughs> so basically I couldn't sell the eggs, but I had to feed all the birds. So the decision was inevitable, I had to cull them, but it meant that we didn't have to cull everyone. We could keep back whoever we wanted for our own personal um, you know, uh, for our own personal use. So we've kept back a small, uh, a small number just because we love ducks. And so sure. now we, now we still have ducks, but, um, we're not allowed to sell the eggs. Um, and yeah, they, they are now just, just to look at. <laughs> that's, that's soul destroying, man. I mean, you were so close from that sort of one, that big break, if you will. And yeah. yeah. That's that's tough, but you 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 guys of of well, what's that? Five months ago, you've in a pretty short amount of time, you've you've changed the business, you've moved yeah. towards towards other things, and and I think this is very interesting. Um, mm. Could you tell us about what you're doing now? Yeah, so uh, now we're actually so one of the things that we discovered in the process of having ducks was um, so because of the fact that ducks like to spray water everywhere like the quantity of water and the quantity of poop that comes out of a duck is like it's immense um i think it's proportionately like if you look at per kilo of body weight i, I believe a duck produces more manure per kilo of body weight than any other livestock right okay that may or may not be a true fact but it, they do produce a lot of manure and then in order to keep the eggs clean you're spreading like a hell of a lot of bedding every day because they don't lay in raised up nest boxes. They lay on the ground and they refuse to use your roll away nest boxes. 
So we're spreading a load of straw in the beginning and then we moved over to like uh, wood, wood chips. Um, that meant a lot of bedding, a lot of duck poop, and also a lot of water that they're flinging around. So the bedding isn't like, it's not like what you usually see in a chicken unit where it's like really dry, sort of caked, and also very like, like ammonia rich manure, like uh, duck manure has less ammonia than a chicken manure in it, okay? So what happened just by accident is we were mucking out the house, we're spreading it out in big flats, in a big flat area, putting a plastic tarp over it, and then we were growing our veg in there. What we realized was that uh, we had red wiggler worms just going mental, like just exploding in population. And basically it's because the, we were providing all the right conditions for, for compost worms to thrive. And so they came in from the natural environment somewhere on their own, and then they just proliferated and proliferated and proliferated. And because we weren't, um, because I have no machinery of my own, like I do now rent in a digger to muck out the house, but I wasn't able to thermophilically turn the piles like frequently, like every time I wanted to do anything, I'd have to hire in a machine. So instead of doing that, I was spreading it out thin and tarping it and it was breaking down on its own. But little did I know the reason it was mostly breaking down is because of the worms actually. So I was trying to avoid the mechanical turning that was really labor intensive. Like I couldn't do it by hand, it was too much manure. Um, and so these are all the conditions worms need. They need low temperatures. So you're not getting those high thermophilic temperatures. They need lots of moisture. They need lots of organic material like straw, wood chip, and then they need some nitrogen like duck chip basically. Um, and they were getting all of that and they were just proliferating. And so it was around about, you know, the time just before things were getting crazy for us in the business. I noticed this and I started looking into worm farming and got really excited about it. And now we are producing worms, but, you know, I should say that this is not, um, it's not like we're a profitable business worm farming yet, at least. Um, we're also obviously producing compost. So we produce compost and we're producing um, uh, worms too. Um, so it's early days for us. It's something we're experimenting with. Um, it's our main focus right now, because to be honest with you, it's the most successful thing on the farm. They're just, they're just doing really well. They're very hardy little things. Um, and they're also super, super valuable. Um, they're referred to, you get different types of worms. There's some worms that operate at the soil surface some that operate a bit lower and some that operate further down in the soil. And the ones that we're talking about here are called epigeic worms. And they, they, they work the leaf litter on the top of the soil. Okay. Um, those worms are in decline in the UK and probably most of the Western industrialized countries. Um, and that has got to do with a combination of lots of tillage. As you can imagine, surface dwelling worms don't like being plowed in. Um, they don't like it if you spread slurry um, straight on top of them. Um, uh, they don't like uh, artificial fertilizers because they're high in salt. Um, and they obviously don't like pesticides and stuff. So 
um, and they need organic material. So they need like stuff to eat. And if there's not enough organic material in the pasture or in the soil, then they're not going to thrive. So epigeic worms are on the decline in the UK and they're super important for soil health. Um, and so, yeah, it feels important. Um, and it's great to see them thriving so much on the farm and doing so well. Um, and, and we're, yeah, we, we love, we love, we love working with them at the moment. I also compost food waste. So, you know, like I'll take some food waste and chuck it into a worm bed. They just demolish it. You know, it's gone. Do you know what you're speaking about YouTube? Um, <laughs> you should film the, the time lapse of them doing that. That, that would be cool. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I yeah. use hours watching mealworms eating watermelons or anything yeah, it's yeah, mad yeah. like i just i honestly yeah. lose hours and it's some massive accounts but um so 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 where, where's the money then josh are you selling the worms or are you selling the compost both but i would say that so we obviously are um we're running on we're running on um what's the word on, on, on bought time because we've got all this duck manure still left over from when the ducks left. So in the, I'm going to have to find another food source for the worms at some point, but right now I've got plenty for them. Um, so we're producing compost from that, but because, um, you know, because composting is a, is a, it's a, it's another industrial volume based, bulk business you really need equipment like you really need a lot of you need diggers you need front loaders you need machinery to do it um so we're not like really set up to be a compost business per se like we just don't have that set up um i'm selling compost in small volumes to people uh, we've also created a product for houseplants so it's worm casts uh we you know we um What's the word? We uh, we uh, we screen the compost that we've got so that it's pure worm casts, and then we package that as houseplant food, focused on a houseplant market really because That's there's a lot of benefits. That's, Sorry, and, and also where money will be because it's smaller. Yes. Smaller yeah, it makes a lot more sense commercially for us. Um, so we're focusing on on the compost side. We sell some to local friends and stuff uh on the plant food side we sell it online um in like little one liter pouches and but the worms is probably the area that's probably got more potential for us um because i would say that you know worm casts are more hassle to make than regular compost okay um and they should be worth more per kilo or per or per liter shall we say um but a lot but it's a hard sell because a lot of people just look at it and go, but it looks like compost. So why are you charging me 10 times the price? Well, it's not compost. It's worm casting specifically. And so, but with worms, if you sell someone a kilo of worms, it's like the value is very obvious. Yeah. It's very clear. Um, so, so yeah, worm breeding might be more of our focus moving forward. Um, but, you know, like I say, this is really early days for the business. And, you know, it's right now, it's not like we're earning a living from it. 
for but sure. It's, it's, it's definitely something that we're um, keen on doing more of in, in the future, yeah. It's an extremely interesting progression, though. I mean, to, to have went from, from, from that bus, you know, sitting on the bus to... When was that? When was the bus epiphany? Along the, the bus way? epiphany would have been sometime in, like, 2015, early 2015. And then we actually, by the time we managed to untie ourselves from London and leave, it was, like, end of 2015. So, yeah, it's been a pretty quick process, really. I mean, in the last eight years, you've went from both having an established job in, in the biggest city of the country to moving out to the complete opposite, trying something that, that as you've said, hasn't worked. And that's, I think it's a, a very positive outlook, the way you're open about that. And then to move into what at the minute feels like it could be something, you know? And both are very much interesting choices and and the the worms especially man like i think that's so interesting and and looking at the idea of worm breeding like <laughs> i would have no idea where to start like i don't know what your common earth worm brings i don't know what your red wiggle i think you said brings you know like red wiggler, yeah <laughs> uh, yeah i mean like that that's so interesting so, absolutely so interesting and it's a uh, it's i think it's a what's the word it's a credit to yourselves to have have went through that soul destroying challenge of of the ducks not working out, and then I think the hardest thing is, like I said earlier, like you had that that thing that was happening. You were going to be able to sell those twenty thousand eggs, and then bang, like it's a complete unexpected tragedy. And and to, to still bounce back in what's only been five months is is commendable. So so credit to you both on that. Um, yeah, thanks, man. No, I totally, totally mean it. Uh, I totally. Mean it. I have to say, um, you know, like the regrets that I felt for doing that, for bothering to like export the egg. Like it's, it's, it's such a, a difficult mental like process to go through because obviously it was an amazing opportunity commercially, right? Um, but then afterwards I was like, you idiot. Like, of course the ducks are going to have salmonella. Like in hindsight, it was so obvious that we were going to have salmonella. And I was just so pissed off at myself for making that decision to go and expose ourselves to the risk. Because the thing is, nobody was getting ill from our eggs. The eggs themselves were not tested for salmonella. And I'm convinced that they would have been salmonella free because for the eggs to get salmonella, we'd have had to handle them really badly from a sort of a hygiene point of view um and there was no requirement there was no requirement for us to do standard like regular salmonella testing on our ducks anyway and all of these places selling chicken and duck eggs around all the little farm gates that you see they're all absolutely guaranteed to have salmonella like if you've got ducks in a backyard exposed to wildlife um and unvaccinated like they are gonna have salmonella so like so i was like i could have just carried on doing what we're doing selling eggs um without risking anybody's from my point of view and perhaps that's not also naive to say but without risking people's health we still by the way we still eat our eggs we don't cook them um our little girl eats them but so I, I had this like incredible regret after when that happened, like just so frustrated looking at everything that we had done, just going to waste. 
but <laughs> it's like it, it has totally worked out for the best because we were we were on a like a hamster wheel we were just treading water the whole time and like we started off with this determination and grit to like make the business work and just to keep going despite the fact that it wasn't profitable despite the fact that we were essentially losing money because there was like promise there you know with our customers buying these duck eggs and people loved the eggs and people would you know they really they they did not want us to stop selling eggs and we shut down they were really upset about it but that grit and determination turned into stubbornness and like we could not see the woods from the trees anymore like we were just sort of we were really blind to how much like that business was drawing from our lives emotionally mentally physically so like to be forced just to shut down the business was actually the best thing that has happened to us like it has lifted us out of what was a cloud of work misjudgment um determination but stubbornness basically so I, i'm so glad it happened in the end um because we we needed to we needed to stop like we really needed to stop um so so yeah it's worked out for the best basically um and uh and, and it is i guess like I think probably for there might be other people in a similar situation where they're, they're grinding, they're determined, they don't want to let go. And like, yeah, if anybody is listening that is in that kind of situation, like at least explore the opportunity of just letting go and just think about what else you could do with your life because, yeah, it, it, it's been a huge weight off our shoulders. Like, yeah. And that's that's got to be... Uh a high consideration that the, the sort of how much how much you're taking out of it the stress the whatever like forget money for a while you know even though money is the cause of most of those problems that's yeah. got to be one of your main considerations i hope you've kicked your feet up and got comfy and enjoying another fantastic episode of the r2 cast with another really interesting guest i would just like to quickly take another second to plug the sponsors of the show today the scottish farmer and i would strongly advise you to go out and pick one up this week and see even more of the fantastic people that are in our industry. But not here. I have really enjoyed listening, <laughs> genuinely. Like it's been, it's been so interesting to hear that story and the sort of trials, trials and tribulations along the way. And um, hopefully, hopefully, um, one of the questions I ask everyone at the end of, of every episode, hopefully your answer to it and and the answer that transpires to be will be in a much more positive place. And I think you're already on the way to that. It sounds like you might have found your thing and, and worms and, and whether that's the compost side, whether that's the worm breeding itself. Um, that's really nice. And, and I think for for the three of you, it's, it's really nice to see. Um, but Thank you, Dick. No, Kira, I mean it, in, I mean it wholeheartedly. The, 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 and I'm sure everyone listening has been interested as well, because I don't think... I don't think we've had a duck farmer on before. We've maybe had folk with, but I don't think we a duck farmer. And I know <laughs> we haven't had a worm farmer. Uh, that is absolutely the truth. Um, but uh, the, the two questions I ask everyone, Josh, and, and I'm interested to hear one of your answers is, is one, um, where do you see yourself in five years? Mm-hmm. Two, if you had tips for folk coming into farming, what would they be? And I think you're a brilliant person to ask that question to. <clears throat> 
Yeah. Um, it, it's really tough because for people coming into farming, I'll answer that one first. Um, I'd say like, do not underestimate uh, how switched on, you know, uh, multi multi-generational farmers and conventional farmers are like how incredibly resourceful they are uh, and like uh, you know how determined they are because I think you come into this from if you have no background in farming you come into this thinking that you're gonna you're gonna do something different you're gonna figure it out like all these people have been doing it wrong if they just did it this way, if they just read so-and-so's book, then they would know that what they're doing is ridiculous and this is how it's done. Don't underestimate how hard, you know, these guys and girls have been working for many generations just trying to survive. So don't come into it um, deluded that you're going to somehow, you know, turn it into this super profitable enterprise. And I'd say just like, if you, I don't, I also don't want to scare people off farming because we need young people to come into the space like desperately um i i'd say like as a practical tip it would definitely be don't quit your day job have you know our our whole premise when we started this we were like we can't do this if we have another job on the side like we have to put a hundred percent of our effort into the farm in order to make it work but at the same time, I was looking around and pretty much all the farmers I knew had another job on the side. Um, and I think that that spreading yourself between another job and the farm, whilst it's not ideal, it, it, it's so much safer and like you don't want to put yourself at financial risk. So, um, you know, and somebody like, I think I remember reading in Joel Salatin's book, You Can Farm, he was pitching this idea like, no, you need to be 100%. You need to quit your, quit your side job when you're ready and then give it 100% of your effort. And uh, I, I don't agree with that. I think that people need to be really, really careful before they do um, because we've poured so much into it. Um, especially if you're starting from nothing with no experience and you're investing everything from scratch. Just, just quickly on that, what's your opinions on Joel Salatin? I, I, don't, I don't see that sort of, um, small scale mixed setup. I don't really see it as as a viable option, to be honest. I- you know, this, this is the thing, and I think this has been sort of the theme of what we've had. You know, of what you've been saying, Josh. Is episode thirty four? We had Lynn of Lynn Breakcroft. Don't know if you know that. Uh, on and Lynn said she was like, if an enterprise in itself doesn't make money, it's gone, and. What she's done is, she, well, her, her and her partner um, have done exactly as you said at the start that you didn't want to do. They have courses. Yeah. They have various yeah. things. They're various income streams. Yeah. And, and Salatin's the same with Polyface. You know, it's, it's, it's the same thing. They've, they've made sure that the, the farm itself doesn't strictly itself need to make money. They've marketed mm-hmm. themselves. I mean, they're a yeah. standout. Yeah, I mean, the guy's been on Joe Rogan, you know. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. And if you're interested, he's also been on the R2 cast. But uh, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it was f- uh, f- 42, 42, I think. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think you. I think the thing you've said is so true. And 
you mentioned about the sort of issues with not the issues with generation, the issues with sort of this perception of, yeah, well, old Jimmy or Margaret down the road, they're doing it wrong, you know. Yeah. And yeah, they probably have got dated opinions and they probably need to look at updating what they're doing. But yeah. I'm glad that, and also I I back you hugely on how honest you are about the fact that it's not easy for everyone and it's it's not going to just work out and i, I appreciate yeah. you honestly. i i think on the like um you know richard perkins is another one Joel Salatin's another one the, this the small mixed um model i don't i don't believe in it because we've just spread ourselves too thin we tried doing that and like you can't um i think when you're on a small scale and it's like you and your missus or like you and another partner or something doing it like you can't especially when you're starting out from scratch you cannot spread yourselves across so many enterprises and be efficient like you can't do it i think maybe if you're on a large scale with a team of people and the right investment and the right infrastructure sure i can see benefits in stacking those enterprises but on a small scale when it's just you my um there's a lot of talk about diverse, diversifying the farm. And um, I think sometimes people mix up stacking enterprises and diversifying. Yeah, agreed. I agreed. think diversifying is good because you can, and that means in my mind, the way I define diversifying is outside of food production. So right now we have an Airbnb on the farm pulling in extra money for us. And I think that's a great idea. It's the easiest work I've done in the last seven years. Okay. And it's you earning- get into podcasting. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know about that. Um, so diversifying outside of uh, agriculture to bring in extra financial support, great. Stacking enterprises is very dangerous. Like if, if you're stacking sheep on top of veg, on top of chickens, on top of fruit, before you know it, you're running around like a chicken without its head. And you're not efficient in, in each of those enterprises. One of them is eating the other one. It, it's very difficult to manage that kind of system. And I think that people get worried because they hear me say that and they're like, oh, but you're saying you want a monoculture. No, it doesn't mean you need to not have diversity in, like you can have sheep and trees. You can have, you can have lots of different things growing in your farm, but it just doesn't, doesn't mean that you need to be a veg farmer and a livestock farmer. And actually all the best market gardeners, like veg producers that I know, they don't want to keep livestock because it's a pain. Like they buy in their eggs from somewhere else, generally speaking. So yeah, stacking enterprises is dodgy on a small, small scale. And I think diversifying is super important for everybody, whether that's having an off farm job or an Airbnb or courses or education. But like, you know, with the Richard Perkins of the world and stuff like, it's just, I'd say, take that all with a grain of salt because, um, you know, sometimes these people are looked at like they're earning all this money from farming, but there's a lot of revenue coming in from other areas. Uh, which, which, is, which isn't a problem. Yeah, it's fine. But yeah. Just don't make I, people think that, I agree. you know, that that's how, yeah. So because we're doing that now, like that is the way that we're surviving, you know. Um, but I'm trying not to lead people to believe that you just need this combination of blueberries and ducks and sheep and veg to make it work. Like, yeah, I I, I completely agree, and I've you know, I'm not actually all that up in Richard Perkins, and just as you were saying it there, um, the 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 
the thing that comes up is packed with insights and inspiration, these 600 plus straight talking behind the scenes videos from Ridgedale and beyond yeah. will motivate you to go out and create a profitable farming business. But his his website is massive. Like that's the profit. I, I completely agree. Exactly. There's there's multiple books there, there's a YouTube channel, there's very, you know, there's courses, lots and lots of courses. And like don't get me wrong, Richard Perkins is an incredible individual. Like he's super hardworking, very knowledgeable. And like like man, that guy can work hard and he can achieve incredible things. Um, but like, we're not all as insanely hardworking as Richard Perkins. That's to um, be considered, and, yeah. And knowledgeable. Um, and uh, also, you know, like supporting the farm for, with income that comes in from other places that is non-food related is, I think at this point, it is critical for most small farms to survive. Like you need income coming in from other areas that are not food related. Yeah. Um, we, you know, even if it's value adding a produce, like if it's taking apples, turning them into cider, or if it's, you know, making really high quality bread or krauts or um, South African biltong or whatever, you know, like, um, yeah, I think that's... Like idea that's, that. that's, like that's, idea biltong. Right, yes, yeah. That's the long answer to your second question. Your first question was? Uh, five years. Or just yourself in five years. Uh, um, well, coming, yeah, coming back to my answer and the other question was, yeah, I definitely see myself um, with determined to hang on to the farm and the land that we've got. We don't want to let that go. Um, obviously, you know about the worm business. Um, we've got a few other little things that we're working on. Um, but I do see myself doing, I, I want to be involved in agriculture that I'm determined to continue being involved in agriculture and to, to be doing agriculture. Uh, but I do see myself um, having a role on the side, working off the farm as well as on the farm. Because I don't think that it's realistic really for me. Uh, you know, perhaps if I was a market gardener, with a CSA uh, right next to a group of people who are going to buy all my produce. Um, that might be a different story. And I, like I said, I don't want to say to everyone that it's not possible to make a living on 10 acres because it, it does not apply to everybody in every circumstance, but in our circumstance where we're based in the country, what our skill set is, the amount of land we've got, especially given that we're so um, passionate about livestock in particular, I don't think we, we, we're not going to make a full living on 10 acres. Um, and so I see myself uh, with one foot in you know, a career out, off the farm and one foot on the farm because I never want to leave the farm and I never want to stop being outside and getting my hands dirty. So, yeah. And, and here you'll have a, an almost eight fluent year old wee girl as well eh, fluent welsh wee girl class. exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah well, no we definitely we're, we're staying where we are um and or we're just gonna it, what's cool is by taking the pressure off us on the farm to make it commercially 100 percent our income it gives us more space to experiment on the farm and to tinker and to do things that are maybe a little bit more off the wall or different or yeah. risky, you know, without worrying that everything will collapse. So, uh, you know, we'll treat Park Carrig as a bit of a research project and um, 
and experiment and we'll continue continue to tinker in agriculture no dear i love it josh and uh, you mentioned it was the first thing you said was we're not farming ducks now when i got in touch with you and i was well aware that was the case and and i i probably got in touch for for a few reasons apart from the fact it sounded like an interesting story but also i hugely rated the honesty of of the struggles and 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 i think it is important to not deter folk but to make them aware of the challenges of 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 coming into farming and um and i thank you usually for that and and for those listening i'm sure you've enjoyed the process the movement from a a a mobile applications producer creator (laughs) to someone selling worms i mean if that if that's not an eight years i don't know what is pretty big leap eh? <laughs> yeah, let me tell you uh, so yeah fantastic good stuff appreciate it hugely and uh, i'm sure everyone listening i'm sure you've enjoyed um for those of you still listening uh, if you are still enjoying the r2 cast um be sure to check out a uh, rural to kitchen on facebook and instagram go and follow josh and abby and it was ada is that right ada yeah, a little Ada. Yeah. Uh, on Park Carrig uh, on Instagram. So uh, a lot going on there as well. Uh, the next episode, as I said, Charlie Beatty. Um, this will be coming out, I believe this is coming out on the 7th of August. So if you're listening to this now, I am currently on a plane from Dubai to Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. So I am heading out to Tanzania and Rwanda with SAYFC. For those of you that know, uh, what ACYFC is great for those that don't. I just did a fundraiser for it, uh, walking around Aaron twice before I get hit by the car. Um, and uh, ACYFC, I'm the current national vice chair of for communications and marketing, uh, and along with Lindsay Campbell, who is the international travel chair, um, Jane Strawhorn, who's the national chair, uh, Paul, who is is in charge of, of communications, sort of from a from a, an employment perspective. Uh, Jim and Katie are heading out. Um, to Tanzania to speak at the G4 Food Summit and then a safari which god I am excited about let me tell you and then moving on to Rwanda to spend basically a week with Rwandan young farmers trying to sort of uh, pass over some knowledge to them and, and hugely expect to be past knowledge from them as well um, if you're interested in Rwandan farming I've had the uh, the international food and farming policy lead for Rwanda on the podcast number 71 Regisuma Geronesa uh, who I will be meeting which I'm very much looking forward to I have a lot of people in these podcasts today with Josh from Wales I've had people from four different continents so far and no, most of the time I say to them if, I, if I'm ever near you or whatever I'll pop in or come say hello I in no world when I said that to Regis thought he would be one of the first people that I would be coming to Rwanda um, but Regis if you're listening very much looking forward to meeting you um, and yeah as 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 I said if you are listening I'll currently be on a plane from Dubai to there so follow Rural to Kitchen for updates on what what's happening in farming in Tanzania and, and for that matter the globe because it is a global food summit um, and then also what's happening in Rwanda and if you're someone that knows about transporting stuff please help me. I have 300 t-shirts that I'm trying to get into Rwanda, um, which seems harder than smuggling blooming cocaine at the minute. So uh, yeah, it's been been a challenge, been quite tricky to try and get that t-shirts over. But uh, thank you very much for listening, Josh. I hope you've enjoyed yourself. Yes, man. Thank you for having me, Wallace. Uh, been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for your story. And uh, for those of you listening, we'll see you for R2Cast number 127 with, I believe, Charlie Beatty. See you then. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed another excellent episode of the R2Cast. I just want to take this moment to quickly thank our primary sponsors once more, A-Plan Rural.
If you follow A-Plan on social media, you'll see the work they're doing to really promote British farming and back our industry. It's been a pleasure working alongside A-Plan Rural so far and long may it continue. The values of A-Plan Rural runs perfectly in line with the whole mantra of Rural to Kitchen and I'm glad to have them on board. Check them out on Instagram at A-Plan Rural and on Facebook at A-Plan Rural Insurance. See you for the next podcast.